You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lori R. King is the author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms, The Games, The Art of Detection, The Language of Bees, The God of the Hive, or as she once told me, she called it Goth. Goth. I, I love that so much. Her new novel is Pirate King. Thank you for joining me, Lori. R. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I think about this particular book is for the entirety of this series, there's been a kind of a metafictional conceit going on. <laughs> and this time, you didn't just decide to embrace it. You just took that metafictional conceit and you turned it into an onion. Yeah, I, I think I figured that there's about six layers to the story, starting with this is a novel by Laurie King, which is also a memoir by Mary Russell, which is also about a movie that's being made about a movie about a... <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, metafiction is a, is definitely the name of the game here. It, it's so much fun. I, I'm wondering, you know, when you're when you conceived of this story within the story within the story within the story, which layer of the story came to you first? And then which direction did you burrow once you came to that layer? I, I think it sort of growed like Topsy. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted this one to be, um, I wanted it to be fun because the last few Russells have gotten darker and darker. Um, and it really, they're, they're fine as suspense novels, but the last couple ones especially overlooked the entire whimsical base to the whole Russell and Holmes story. Mm -hmm. You know, here's a young woman who becomes the apprentice and partner and then wife of Sherlock Holmes. And if you don't embrace that as being ridiculous, I, I don't know how you can approach the story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last couple of ones really haven't paid too much attention to that. So I thought, okay, time to, time to really pick it up and run with it. And that's what we did. It's one of your funniest books. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It's the the dialogue is so fun. It moves really at a just a, a lightning pace, and the characters. What's good about it is, is that within the conceit that you have going, everybody within it has to take the their jobs pretty seriously. But we as readers. Just it's just a hoot from beginning to end. There's a lot of nudge nudge in it from the from the author to the readers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the the uh, British humor is so so interesting to begin with because on the one hand it's very dry, on the other hand it's absolutely slapstick. And and so what I was aiming for was very much a Gilbert and Sullivan kind of humor, and that's the basis of the book. Is this movie that's being made about the Pirates of Penzance, sort of, <laughs> that that gets a little bit out of hand, and then it gets further out of hand, and pretty soon it's exploded in their faces. And yeah, it was it was one of those books where you just keep pushing it to see how far, how much you can get away with. And, and well, 
<laughs> Not to give anything away, but... We don't want to give anything away, but <laughs> you get away with way more than anybody is going to believe going in. <laughs> and that's one of the fun things. When you were writing this, did you find you were surprising yourself? I, I kept writing scenes. And my first drafts tend to be um, pretty much at a rush. And I don't, I don't do an awful lot of correcting and editing as I go because the rewrite tells me if it's working or not. Mm -hmm. So the first draft is, is very much stream of consciousness. And, and as I was going through the first draft of this, I kept thinking, this is never going to work. This is, never, this is just too far out there. Nobody's going <laughs> to either get it or put up with it. Um, but when I took a look at the first draft, when I'd finished it and went back with a critical eye as a, you know, as a editor and um, someone with a large machete in her hand, I found that it, it worked as, um, you know, as farce. It works. And I was quite delighted. <laughs> now, uh, this covers a lot of new ground for you in terms of history and technology and settings. Did you give yourself... A, um, an excuse to visit all these uh, foreign loca locales. Yeah. Oh my, I've got to go to Lisbon. Isn't it a pity? <laughs> well, it actually, it's one of those books that work the other way around. That oh, really? I was uh, in Lisbon because my daughter and her husband were there for a year. And I thought, well, there's no reason why I can't go to Lisbon and write. I, you know, I take my laptop and that's all I need at, a, at the beginning of a book. When I get further on, I need a lot of reference stuff. But the beginning of a book... You know, I, I can write in Lisbon, can't I? So I started, and indeed, I could write in Lisbon, and I thought, well, why can't Mary Russell go to Lisbon as well? <laughs> why not? So she went off to Lisbon, and then we went to uh, Morocco for 10 days because it's there. I mean, you know, it's only an hour from, from Portugal, so why not? As and long as you're not sailing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as long as you're not on a boat, which you know, gets becalmed out in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, we were on a plane, and it didn't fall out of the sky, and, you know, it was, it was fine. And, um, and so I hadn't intended on using Morocco, not in this book and perhaps not for some point in the future. But as soon as I got there, I thought, oh, yes, yes, this is, this is perfect. Um, so, yeah, I... I this is one of those books that I went to the place and thought, oh, yes, this will do just fine. Thank you very much. Wow, what fun. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so you were actually... It's such a hard life, isn't it? <laughs> I just suffer so for my art. Well, we really reap the rewards because uh, we can feel the fun in this that you're having writing this book. It's really communicated to the reader in terms of the prose. And, and you know, you said that once you went... You finished this. Did you finish it like in Morocco, or did you have to come home to finish it? Oh, I finished it at home. Okay. But I had started. I got probably 80, 100 pages in before I, before I came home. Wow, that's so great. Now, um, when you, how much, I know that you usually do a lot of revision. Did you find yourself doing less revision with this book, or did, was it about the usual amount? Probably a bit less, mm -hmm. um, simply because the, the actual plot line is not as convoluted as some of them. Mm -hmm. The one that I have been working on since writing Pirate King, uh, which also is set in Morocco, is one of those that has very complicated plot twists, and it, I, I ended up feeling like I was 
playing whack-a-mole with it. That, you know, something would <laughs> pop up and I'd fix it, and then something else would pop up and so I'd fix that. Then something else would pop up and say, so, it was driving me crazy. But but Pirate King was not. Pirate King had a, has a fairly straightforward narrative arc, if mm-hmm. you could even call it an arc. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, you know, a three-hour tour. <laughs> That, that, that gets <laughs> severely taken astray. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this was, you know, the look at, at the primitive uh, British film business, which is so, it, all that kind of technology during that time is so interesting. And the kind of people who were, you know, able to get their hands on it. So talk about, you know, your research for the film and the kind of people and creating this Randolph flight in hail. These guys are such a hoot. You must have really been had a felt just like you hit my hit gold when you discovered met these people. Yeah, yeah, they're they're. Well, I I have yet to be intimately involved with the Hollywood process, um, but I've seen enough of it over the years that you sort of think. Subtract ninety years, and this is where we are. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. You look at some of the movies out of the 20s um, and generally think of them as being primitive technologically, mm-hmm. um, partly because the way that they are shown now, it tends to make them very jerky. Mm-hmm. But if you play them at the correct speed, um, they really are very smooth. No, really. And, Interesting. Yeah, and and there's this one that is mentioned actually in Pirate King um, that I don't know if you've seen, but it's called Sherlock Jr. Uh, it's Buster Keaton. I was one, wanted to ask you about Buster Keaton because he's so you, brilliant. You really should download that. It's there's a freebie download out there. It is superb. It is such a great movie. Um, the 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 premise is Buster Keaton is a young man who has been turned down by a, a young woman. And so he, his job is in a, um, a movie house projector. You know, he's, he's in charge of the projection machine. And he falls asleep and goes and gets in the screen with the movie. And it's brilliant. I mean, this special effects of him moving from scene to scene in this movie. Um, you know, he'll sit down on a rock in one, and then the scene will change and the rock will disappear so he'll fall on his rear end and then he'll be, have a lion standing there looking at him because he's moved from the shore to the savannah of Africa. It's just brilliant, brilliant stuff. It, it's so amazing um, what some of these people were able to do with, with technology that we consider primitive. It, it, I think a lot of it has to do with imagination and limitations because... Um, when you have, as we now have, such unlimited technology, uh, it really kind of, in some ways, it almost dampens your imagination. When you have to figure out a way to do something, mm-hmm. you, then I think you may, when you come up against those, those barriers, that's when your innovative and imaginative mind really kicks into high gear. Yeah. And I, I think we've got to the point now where if there's any faint whiff of unreality to a piece of special effects, it takes away from it. Mm-hmm. But that was not really required, you know, in the 20s. No. So long as it was smooth, mm-hmm. it was quite believable. Right. Now, talk about uh, Randolph Flight, because he's such an engaging character. When you went into this, you know, with uh, 
Russell and Holmes are they are investigating, you know, uh, nefarious doings associated with a motion picture production company, and it's this Randolph flight and <clears throat> Mr. Uh, Hale. Uh, wherever they go, cram, crime seems to follow. Well, it's the the main the main purpose of the whole investigation was to get her out of Sussex because <laughs> 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 because she's there in Sussex and um, it, uh, ready to settle down after the last couple of books, which have taken them hither and yon and on ships and on airplanes and all the rest of it. And so she's quite ready to settle down to her books for a while. But with the threat of a visit from Mycroft, she says, oh, no, I'm so out of here. <laughs> and off she goes and gets involved in this in this movie crew. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a mystery. There's a disappearing secretary, and there's some very shady doings in the background. And so you do have to find out who's doing what and to mm-hmm. whom. But I, I don't think it will surprise the reader any to find that, honestly, that doesn't matter all that much because <laughs> by the time she gets halfway you know, into what she's supposed to be doing with this movie crew, all different set of problems has, <laughs> has reared up. <laughs> this is a, a problem when, that happens when you... Uh, <clears throat> It's, I guess, an early version of reality TV. <laughs> kind God, of. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> Jersey Shore. <laughs> oh, dear. Barbary Shore. <laughs> Barbary Shore, definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> one of the things I think that's uh, so well done in this book is the dialogue. And, um, you know, as you are writing this dialogue, do you, you know, read it aloud to yourself? And, and how much of this, you know, happens, you know, pours off the tip of your pen and how much of it is the result of pruning because it's really snappy and it's very funny. I mean, <clears throat> I think one of the things that this is one of the funniest books I've read this year. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> and it's fun, too. Yeah. It's a lot of, you You have a good sense of having, like, great adventure, you know, a, a really great kind of adventure. Um, and and pirates yeah and pirates what and more pirates could, come no, on now what more could you ask <laughs> Morocco and pirates what mm. more can you ask yeah the dialogue is always um, uh, it to some degree it comes naturally because I've been writing Russell since you know the late eighties now mm-hmm. and her voice is pretty natural in my in my head um, but there's also the concern as you're going through to keep the rhythm correct because mm-hmm. there are some times where the dialogue is um, is fairly meaty and um, they, they really are trying to trying to attack a certain problem or question f- straight on and so you, you have these big chunks of dialogue and um, but other times what you want is something that's very quick and back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the key is to put the necessary information within that. Um, preferably oh, some, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, and, and preferably throw in a few distractions as well. Mm-hmm. So that if you've given a clue in the dialogue, nobody will notice it because they're looking at something else. Um, and, and down to how it looks on a page, because if you have massive quantities of monologue on a page, it it looks heavy, mm-hmm. and there's no way to read that without going into it heavy. Whereas if you find a page that is composed of many small lines, 
of you know six or eight words each, um, you face it with a great deal more um, impetus than you know than than settling down with a big mouthful of <laughs> prose. <laughs> so when you are typing this, are you like uh, kind of just doing a, for your own I, I sake kind of a basic layout, you know, a page layout? So you can kind of really get a sense of how it looks on the page. Mostly, that's that's what I tackle in the rewrite, mm. Mm. Um, because when you're, you know, when you're redoing a scene, what you're trying to do is take the scene that's there on the page and make it more so, mm -hmm. so that if you have a scene that's horrible, you really want it to be awful. If you want to have a scene that is light and quick, mm -hmm. you want it to be really, really light and quick. And again, with Pirate King, if you want it to be silly, by God, it's got to be silly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get to the, the meat of the matter, which is pirates of all sorts, because there's more than one kind of pirate in, in this book. These are not Somali pirates armed with AK-47s, no. no. This is, there's very little reality in this book. Well, talk about creating the pirates of this book. And, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, I believe Doyle was what himself was rather upset about um, American pirates. Poor old Conan Doyle, yes, <laughs> yes. As, as following in the footsteps of Dickens. Yeah. Well, even the, the title for Pirates of Penzance mm -hmm. was, uh, it was given that title because Gilbert and Sullivan were very cross that Americans had just sort of made the habit out of Borrowing. <laughs> <laughs> pirating anything they, they wanted. Exactly, exactly. The idea of pirating as a literary thing is very early. Mm. Um, yes, and as you say, Dickens and Conan Doyle and Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm. So um, Pirates of Penzance was one of the few that was actually performed here in this country first because it got around, that, that nailed down the whole copyright thing <laughs> very firmly. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, the idea of pirates is many, there, there are m many sides to that idea. There's actual pirates, there's swashbuckling pirates, there's literary pirates. And there's, um, mention is made in the book of uh, Randolph Flight as being a, a pirate. He's the head of this, fictional movie company. I'm, I'm sorry, Rick, it is flick fictional. Is it? Okay. <laughs> Fli <laughs> Fli Fli Flight Films is only a flight of fancy. <laughs> it should be real. I agree. It really should be. Um, but he's he's called the pirate because he's stolen a couple of um, actors from uh, from the Hollywood um, company. So that, that too enters into it. Many dimensions of piracy. When you were... Um Creating some of the characters on location, I, I love the, the 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 pirate king in this. Uh, the guy who who is a pirate, La Rocha. La Rocha. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a, that must have been a fun character to create. So, uh, did you did you have him in mind when you started the book, or did you just kind of say, "I need"? Well, him. yeah, I needed a pirate king, mm -hmm. and he's he's one of those characters that, on the one hand. He needed needed to be so so decorative when you first see him that you don't take him terribly seriously. Mm -hmm. But as the as the plot goes on, you begin to realize this may just be the real thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and and this of course is where where Russell 
you know, we're, we're following along in Russell's mind as she's looking at this man and thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then thinking, hmm, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm getting on a boat with that? <laughs> well, she has uh, more concerns in many ways about getting on a boat with a gaggle of adolescent girls. I love these <laughs> girls, and I'm wondering if you ever found yourself in charge of that particular number of women. 13 blonde actresses? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, I think poor Russell really has her work cut out for her in this one. She... You know, she's she's never been much of a girly girl. Yeah. And to be faced with 13 actresses ranging in the age of, I think the youngest one is like eight, and then they go on to the late 20s, um, is, is just not her world. <laughs> <laughs> it's not her skill set. Not so much, no, no. Though she's adept. She, uh, one of the things that's nice about Russell is that uh, she's a quick study. <laughs> yeah. I guess you have to be if you're hanging out with Sherlock Holmes. That's pretty much a uh, de jour. Yeah, yeah. She she does have to think on her feet. That's true. As you were, you know, writing this, kind of coming out of some of the, the more darker um, aspects of the previous books, uh, you know, you there's still some of those threads here. I mean, this is still a mystery, and, you know, there are, there are things that will be dropped and things that will happen to people. Um, how, how did you, you know, I guess calibrate this, you know, in terms of, you know, wanting to make it so that it doesn't completely froth? You know, make sure there's, you know, little bits of steel in there that people might get cut on, which is what keeps it, you know, kind of, it keeps it... Uh, Fun, it makes the humor funnier when when uh, somebody might pull a real blade. Yeah, it's it's you have to play fair with the audience, mm-hmm. um, so that you know if you if you just ignore the fact that as you say knives cut um, in fiction, it it lessens the overall effect, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't accept that. Um, in the story, although silly things happen, there is this dark question of, is there actually a threat to these young women? And, you know, when it turns out that, well, yes, there is, um, you, you have this uncomfortable awareness that you're, you're approaching the story from both sides, mm-hmm. that this is an entertainment and it's funny and it's light and surely it's going to turn out okay because, you know, this is a series. And on the other hand, um, you know, you begin to be really concerned about where the story might be going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's one of the really brilliant parts of this is because that kind of tension between the kind of story that you've written and the kind of story this seems to be becomes a plot driver yeah. that for, for a read and that's a really interesting way to approach a plot to say I'm going to write something that looks really light and fun but has the potential to go really 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 bad well one of the things that was a great joy with the book from a writer's point of view <clears throat> was that I came across this figure of Fernando Pessoa oh yeah yeah we definitely want to talk about Pessoa he is so interesting I, I mean was the, this when okay, you were in Lisbon? I am, I am writing about um, this balance between light, frothy Hollywood fake 
um, ridiculousness. And this dark, really threatening idea of piracy. And the, the question of how to link those two, how to, how to cover the span between those two worlds mm -hmm. um, in a way that works was clearly from the beginning going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a, as if you tried to make a stage play that was a cross between Pirates of Penzance and Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I mean it really would be just a bit of a problem. Until I came across Fernando Pessoa. And was this in Lisbon? Yeah. Yeah. Actually I, I came across him beforehand because um, he had he has a guidebook. I mean, Fernando Pessoa lived from the late eighteen hundreds to the nineteen thirty six, seven, I think it was. Anyway. Um, and he was a very disturbed man. <laughs> really, really, he was. Um, I love the way you say that, Laurie. This is one of the things that makes these conversations so enjoyable. Well, it's hard to say anything other than that. Um, he was a very interesting man. Um, he had a lot of psychological aberrations. Um, he was a poet and regarded himself as being the... Um, the cutting edge of the new Portuguese empire that would be the empire of the mind, as it were, um, that where Portugal had once ruled the waves, in the future Portugal was going to rule the literary and artistic world, and that all of Europe would turn to Portugal, to Lisbon, and of course to Fernando Pessoa. <laughs> so he was at the forefront of a self-invented movement. Mm -hmm. um, he was almost completely unpublished in his time. He published himself, but <laughs> was almost completely unpublished. Um, survived by translating documents um, for um, English companies, because mm -hmm. he spoke English. And had come up with this idea that to really write poetry, you had to write the character who was writing the poetry so that when he writes a lyrical, uh, lyrical poem about the beauty of Portugal and the sheep on the hills and the rest of it, it isn't Fernando Pessoa who's writing that. It's one of his, what he calls, heteronyms that he has these multiple personalities, all of whom have elaborate histories. I mean, it's not just a pseudonym. Not a pseudonym at all. It's a complete personality of, you know, and there were 72 of these. 72? That's 70, 72 separate personalities. Um, one woman, just one woman. A couple that you weren't too <laughs> sure about, but there's only one who's definitely female. <laughs> And, and so here's this man who takes himself very seriously, mm -hmm. who has this completely absurd way of looking at, at the world, um, who writes very moving poetry, um, and who has, and, and this was the absolute gem, a 900-verse poem that's a maritime ode to pirates. <laughs> what more could you ask? <laughs> it was it was so great, and I and I came across it 
actually not as the poem first, but um, a series of scholarly articles written about his poetry that goes into the homoerotic side of the maritime ode. And this, you know, because in this pirate poem, he, he goes from singing the praises of, you know, the Portugal's um, seafaring past and how he wants to be on a ship with the pirates and all the rest of it. And, the, and this poem kind of slowly gets weirder and weirder <laughs> and darker and creepier and really bizarre when he turns into the ship and he wants to be lashed by the waves and, and oh, he becomes... Some, he, yes, he overhears and, some of that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so Russell is overhearing this and thinking, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but, you know, this character was perfect to tie in, the, you know, because he's so unrealistic, but yet real. I mean, everything about Pessoa in the book, other than possibly the fact that he was involved with Mary Russell and the film company, but everything else about him is is absolutely from from true life. Well, and it's so appropriate that he would be involved with Mary Russell and the yeah. film company, <laughs> the film within the film, yeah, and his exactly. interest in that yeah. whole... Uh, genre. So this is yeah. really, it's a really brilliant, and he's such a fun character. He's he, so much fun to be around. He yeah. really lights up those pages. Yes. And I and I think people will probably believe I made him up, but no, <laughs> really not. <laughs> I think he's one of those characters you just couldn't make up. Well, one of the things, though, that I think you do a very good job of is, is writing him so that he's an engaged, when I write him, he an, seems an engaging story, character in the story and you really buy them as part of the story and and this is I think a, a real knack that you have to have to put real people in a story in a way that they fit in the story now this guy of course he's so bizarre that, <laughs> that yeah. putting him in this kind of farce is pr pretty easy yeah he wouldn't fit in a very many stories. I mm -hmm. mean, pretty pretty much any other story he was in, he'd throw the whole thing off. I, I mean, Dashiell Hammett I could make use of with no problem in in locked rooms, but mm -hmm. um, Fernando Pessoa wouldn't fit in most books. <laughs> <laughs> well, he he's a really interesting character just because, I mean, I mean, in many ways he seems very much ahead of his time. Oh yeah, I, and yeah. he was very very you know he really was cutting edge when it came to the. Uh, the the literary world and unappreciated uh, unappreciated I, I love that he was self-published throughout <laughs> yes. his life yes. yes he had two or three different um literary magazines and uh, in fact i think there's a, a scene in there where <laughs> she is given one of these magazines and there's numerous names and they're all him. They're all him. <laughs> was this true that he would oh, yeah. that he would pub, say he would publish himself yeah. under different names yeah. in his own magazine? Yeah, he'd write the introduction under his own name, and then the other ones were all heteronyms. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Did, is that term heteronym his? Yeah. Wow, that yeah. is that is so fascinating. He really is a fascinating guy. Yeah. Oh, and two, in a sense, he becomes uh, in many ways. Now that I think of it, he's kind of a literary version of uh, our own Mr. Holmes in terms of his ability to disguise himself and take on personalities. <laughs> I mean, he really fits in with the... Uh... <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Unreality is us. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I think that uh, I also just really dug about this book was the um, the way that you work in the kind of the different film plots with the the film within the film within the play and 
interleave uh, the Gilbert and Sullivan quotes throughout the book, and also the silent film titles that you put in there to give it that kind of pacing. I mean, you do yeah. a really good job of like... The, the poor old art department. I, <laughs> I told them, this really has to be set like that. And they said, oh, I don't know. I said, yeah, you really have to. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it, it, when you were doing this, I mean, you must... Uh, Presumably, you thought, well, this is uh, going to be kind of my version of a silent film. and, and um... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, with a silent film, you have these various techniques for shifting scenes. Mm -hmm. And um, and some of them are, are the, the boards that appear the, with the little speeches. Or um, if you really have to know where the change is going, they'll put a board up there. But they really didn't like to do it very often. Mm -hmm. which makes for a very interesting way of telling a story because at first you think with a silent film, nobody could follow it mm -hmm. because without speech to tell you what's going on and without a storyboard to tell you what it is you're seeing, how, how can you follow the plot? Mm -hmm. But if you look at one of the early films, um, it's, it's amazing how seldom they use a speech board. I found it really quite striking. And as a writer, it's it's a really good illustration of the you know the order that you you do you don't describe, mm -hmm. you show you don't tell, mm -hmm. and that in the in the movie is very much so. You just plunge right into the action. You don't know who these people are. You don't know what they're saying, but they're gesturing and they're pointing and they're. Well, that works perfectly with all your pirates who nobody can understand <laughs> except for you start to think, well, boy, these guys, maybe you don't want to be cooped up in a ship with these guys. You really don't. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And poor Russell, who doesn't like sailing and doesn't like heights, and the only place she can get away from the craziness is to go up in the mast. Yeah. When you, you know, you've had lived with these characters, Russell and Holmes, for, for so long, and, you know, you've treat them so cavalierly. <laughs> Holmes, Holmes get, gets a, does not get exactly a welcome aboard from Russell. Oh, she, she does eventually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it, it's true. I, I don't treat my characters very, very gently, do I? Um, Russell, I, I realized about six or seven books into the series, Pirate King is the 11th, mm -hmm. and I realized about six or seven books in that she was never warm. In all the books, she's freezing. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, true. So I kept trying to send her warm places, and I'd send her to um, to India, but then they'd go up in the mountains. Um, and then she was in California, but she was that was San Francisco, and so it was foggy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in this one, you're just not going to give her a break, are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. It's Lisbon in the winter, and the the one that I've been working on is is also winter. So you know, poor old thing. Now, uh, you you do mention you're working on one, and and I'm guessing that is. Let me see. Check my notes here. A garment of shadows. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so how far are you on this? And are you is this? Are you still in the? Uh, I mean, it seems like you wrote this book in a mood. Yeah. You got yourself Definitely. in a mood yeah, and, and yeah. had a lot of fun. Are you yeah. still in that mood? Or are they well, you have I some leave overs? Well, it spills over a little bit. Uh -huh. um, the, the next one, Garment of Shadows, is going to be much more um, an adventure novel. I mean, it's, it's, 
It's not as dark as the last two, um, God of the Hive and Language of Bees. It's more like the game or um, or O Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a great adventure in an exotic setting. Mm. Um, they go off. I couldn't I couldn't bear to part from Morocco. I, it was just too great. And this this book, Pirate King, they only get to see one very small corner of Morocco. Mm-hmm. And I thought I I can't I can't let her leave yet. <laughs> so they get involved in Morocco and they they end up in Fez, which is the most amazing city in the world. Mm. It's just the most incredible place. Medieval city. You might have to go back. Century. I'd love to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, this uh, we have coming up also um uh and Sherlock Holmes anthology. Yes. Tell uh, us a little bit about how that came to be. A about study the, in Sherlock. A study in Sherlock. What a well, great set of uh, authors you've got oh, there. Oh, isn't it great? Yeah. Um my my sort of mentor in the Sherlockian world, um, whom I mention in um, Art of Detection as one of the Sherlockian experts that the poor old San Francisco detective um, has to phone to find out what the hell is going on with all this Sherlockian stuff. Um, Les Klinger is his name. And Les is uh, an eminent Sherlockian. He wrote the three-volume annotations of the new annotated Sherlock Holmes. Um, and uh, he also did um, Dracula, the annotated Dracula. And the next set up is, I think it's four volumes of the annotated Sandman. So Les is Les is this an is the annotator. Neil yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So Les is a great annotator, but he he got me involved in the Sherlock Holmes thing, and um, um, he and I decided to do a series, a collection of scholarly articles that had been written about the Sherlock Holmes material over the last century. Mm-hmm. And it ended up as two volumes, The Grand Game. Um, the second volume will be out sometime this fall. But in one of our conversations, um, either he or I, I can't remember who, said, boy, it should be fun to have some of the uh, writers that we know um, involved in some project like that. And little lights went on in the back of our heads, and we said, ah, oh, I bet we could put together some interesting people. So he wrote to a number of his friends. I wrote to a number of mine and said, would you be interested in doing a short story that has to do with Sherlock Holmes? It doesn't have to be about him. It can be inspired by him. It can be, um, you know, people in his time. You can use one of the minor characters that come up in the Sherlockian stories. Anything that is inspired by the Holmes canon. And we deliberately chose people that are not connected with Sherlock Holmes, people who don't write pastiches. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only one in there who had written a strictly Sherlockian piece before was Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. who wrote one a few years ago, A Study in Emerald. Oh, what a fantastic story. Well, yeah. I heard him read that aloud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this isn't that. That story's not in there. No, this is, is a, a new, new one. one. This oh, is a new one. Right. It's a super one. And... So we have um, 18 writers, in addition to Les and me, um, who all wrote uh, a story inspired by Holmes. And they are superb. And, you know, Niels is just gorgeous. And Lee Child wrote one that is so wicked. I mean, it's just just short and strong and brilliant, (laughs) brilliant piece. Um, And it's going to be a whole lot of fun. That'll be out, I think the pub date's October 25th. 
Well, that sounds wonderful. In time for Christmas giving. In time for <laughs> Christmas giving, along with the Pirate King. I've been speaking with Lori R. King. Her new novel is Pirate King. Thank you for joining me, Lori. R. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.